0: The following sermon is recorded live at Foundation Church in Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Perfect. Thank you very much. Let's pray and ask the Lord to illuminate his scriptures to us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it as an anchor, as a source of truth, as a boundary for what we need to know and what is right. Please. Make our hearts sensitive to any kind of encouragement or correction or admonishment or teaching that we need to receive from it today and lord please uh, through your holy spirit cause me to faithfully deliver it to your people in jesus name amen all right so this particular text is very simple in structure and content i don't think that i'm really going to be revealing any sort of new knowledge or information to you today um but we will find that often that is just a sort of repetition and simple reminder that we most need. Uh, and so I hope to be able to also offer to you some, some very practical advice uh, on how to live our lives to the glory of God today. So first, let me just briefly introduce the letter to the Philippians. Uh, this is just a one-off sermon, kind of in-between series, um, so we haven't been working in Philippians, so I'm just going to share a little bit of context with you. Um there's a church in Philippi, uh, which Paul, to whom Paul is writing. Um, the Philippians seem to be experiencing some measure of suffering, uh, but also a measure of doubt. And so Paul instructs the Philippians to, one, remain faithful, and two, to live out that faith. The Philippians is a very action-oriented, a very practical letter to a church. Um, It's sometimes even proverbial in nature where there's just a lot of advice and a lot of instruction and a lot of how-to and a lot of encouragement to be steadfast and to keep serving the Lord. And so faithfulness and the righteousness that flows from it should serve to give us hope in suffering and also to give us evidence to settle any doubts that we may have. So first we're going to look at how Paul Seems to think that living out faith kind of works. And then we're going to look at how, uh, at each of these virtues that we discussed in turn. And then I'll conclude with some practical advice on how to follow God's instruction. So let me read our text for us again. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So this is towards the end of the letter, and Paul begins these, these sentences with the word, finally. This is his concluding instruction. He's summarizing the rest of the letter, as it were, and so he is returning one more time to emphasize the themes that we find throughout the letter to the Philippians. He's urging the Philippian church to set their minds on the things of God and to put those things into practice so that they might Be at peace. The structure of this passage, again, is very simple, which is nice and sometimes unusual for Paul. Paul starts with an instruction on how to think, and then he directs us to practice those same things upon which we think. So there's not a lot of, like, theology. Paul isn't trying to illuminate some doctrine to us or to correct some kind of dangerous error. It's really just instructions. First, you think what is right, and then you will do what is right, and then you will have peace. God will be with you. Or we can take that formulation backwards. If you want for the God of peace to be with you, then you should practice what is right. And in order to practice what is right, you should think what is right. That is a fairly common desire that people have, I suppose, and not necessarily unique to the church in Philippi. We all want peace, right? Peace meaning freedom from worldly fears. Peace meaning security about the future. We want peace, in the sense that our spiritual beliefs and our physical lives are aligned with one another. We don't have contradictions in our lives where we think one thing but do another, or we believe the world works one way but then we see it work a different way. We want peace. And Paul is, of course, not the first to suggest that virtue is a major source of such peace. Many of his contemporary writers, both in Greek and Jewish writings at the time, were concerned with ideas of virtue. And what it takes to appease the soul, whether or not they use those exact words, and of course we still have those exact same desires today. Today we might hear words used like safety, or harmony, or fulfillment to describe this state of both internal and external peace, but for the most part we still desire peace, and for the most part we still prescribe the same solution. The solution, however you define peace, the solution to get it is to believe what is right, and then do what is right. And certainly, there's some sharp disagreement on exactly what qualifies as right, but the general pattern is, I think, self-evident. It's so common. Think right, do right, and you will feel right. But I want to look a little closer at these particular instructions, to draw out some more detail and consider what it means for us, for Christians, for people of God, to think right and do right And therefore have peace. So let's for the moment set aside the particular list of virtues and just look at the main verbs being think about these things and practice these things. So this word think could be also translated consider or regard or understand. The word that Paul uses here evokes ideas of of careful thought, of weighing something out, considering deeply, pondering, a decision. Another word that you might use could be meditate. And I think maybe the reason why meditate wasn't chosen here by the translators is because that word has been captured in our modern English by Eastern religion and sort of generic spirituality to mean something like empty your mind. But really, meditate should mean fill your mind, but only with particular things. Don't just let your thoughts go wherever they please, but rather Take control of your thoughts. Take them captive, as the Bible says. Keep them on track towards a goal. And so if if we take this particular instruction from Paul with that meaning, what we should be hearing is these virtues that I have listed. Carefully consider them. Go over them again and again. Focus closely on these things. Spend a lot of time really getting to know these good virtues. Paul wants us to know them well. And then he says, put them into practice. We recognize, of course, that this is, in some sense, a natural and even an automatic transition. Whatever fills your mind also tends to be the same things that fill your deeds, and especially our words. This truth is present all over Scripture. Jesus says in Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs is full of instruction about how the internal self reveals itself by the external deeds. And in the language of the day, we need to remember, too, that the the heart, when you see the Bible say heart, it isn't just like the way we use it to mean like the seat of our emotions, but rather the heart is the core of the entire internal self. Our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, our motives, all rolled into one, our internal person, our heart. So out of the abundance of one's internal life, the mouth speaks. And the counterpoint in Ezekiel, God says of Israel, how sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things. So those evil deeds that come out of us also reveal the sickness in our heart that is the source of them. So how we think, in many ways, naturally determines how we act. But practice does also carry a bit more meaning than just a simple cause and effect relationship. (coughs) So we say that an athlete practices, and we mean by that that he does the same drills over and over again. He's making an effort to change his behavior into something better. Or a doctor might practice medicine, and when we say that a doctor practices medicine, we mean that when you go and see a doctor, hopefully he doesn't clock in at nine and clock out at five and forget all about being a doctor outside of those hours. Hopefully he spent years and years studying, and he keeps up with the state of medicine. He's always trying to get better. His life is committed to the practice Of medicine. And so, likewise, here, just as we meditate on these virtues, Paul also instructs us to make a practice of these virtues, to make a habit of them, to commit to them, to endeavor to do better in them. Practice truth, make a habit of truth, become the kind of person who is more truthful. So, both of these words, both think on these things and practice these things, have connotations of ongoing, consistent repetition. And that, again, it makes perfect sense. There's nothing, there's no great revelation here. We all know that we don't want to just do a good deed once today. We want to be good people. We want to be better, permanently. And we also need to remember the point of this letter. Just one verse earlier, in verse 7, we read that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So by following these instructions, by thinking on these things, by practicing these things, we are serving to guard our hearts, guard our hearts to be vigilant, to be alert against all of these sufferings and doubts and anxieties that plague the church at Philippi and likewise us today. <coughs> those negative outcomes that we want to avoid, those, those anti-patterns of thought and action that seem to be present in the Philippian church are always present, fear and doubt and loss of faith. You never outgrow them And so you never, likewise, outgrow the need for right thinking and right practice. One of the most prominent themes in all of Paul's letters is of steadfastness and endurance. And learning this skill is vital because perseverance in hardship, whether in sin or in suffering, is the mark of a true believer. Continuing onward is vital. And those anti-patterns of thought, if left unchecked, do indeed pull us slowly and surely away from the truth that is in Christ? And eventually, we end up acting functionally like we aren't Christians at all. (sighs) And so, this might then raise a question, because so far I've mostly only said things that seem obvious. How you think affects how you act. Doing things repetitively over and over again causes you to do them more as they become a habit. Everyone knows that. There's there's even a a fairly common practice in clinical psychology called cognitive behavioral therapy Which seems self-evident when you hear it, but is actually very effective and very useful But the, the the essential fundamental truth behind it is that most people do behaviors that they don't like Because they have patterns of thought that generate those behaviors. And so if we can rewrite the thought patterns We will also rewrite the behaviors It's a very effective method. It's measurable and proven to work well, but it's hardly revolutionary. I mean, Paul was already onto this idea 2,000 years prior to today, and he also was not by any means the first person to come up with this idea that changing your heart changes your mind and changes your actions. So if this is just generic good advice about behavioral modification, why is it in the Bible, and why are we reading about it today? There are plenty of books and articles about all manner of particular thoughts and behaviors that you could read that would say the same thing—change your mind to change your actions. So there's two reasons. One, it is not ungodly at all to simply be wise and take good advice. I preached about this in Proverbs this summer. Since God is the creator of wisdom and its source, the source of all wisdom, all wise behavior is God-honoring, in some sense. Good advice is good advice. It doesn't necessarily have to be super spiritual on its face, but wisdom means that we recognize God made the world to work a certain way, and so when we act in concert with the way that God made the world, it works better. And when we work against it, it's worse, and we simply call that wisdom. So it's perfectly fine for Paul to just give good advice. But secondly, the list of virtues chosen is fairly important. I think that Most people would agree that all of these things are good. I don't think anyone is asking for less truth or less justice in the world. But all of these virtues come from God, and they all have a particular meaning to Christians. So yes, being just in the world is a good thing. uh, But whether people realize it or not, the reason why we value justice is because God made us that way, and the influence of Christianity on all of our culture. So being just as a Christian means something a little different, something a little more than just, than just being just as a person. So we're going to consider each of the virtues briefly, and how they should be understood particularly as Christian virtues. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. So truth, as a Christian virtue, is much more than just something that's factually accurate. You're not going to get any great spiritual value from meditating deeply on a completely accurate list of state capitals. True, fine, but this is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about truth in the sense of things that are truthful, truths that are trustworthy, dependable. First and foremost, among all the things that are true, and what hopefully comes to your mind, is the Word of God. And the word of god is not just true in the sense of being factually accurate although it is but i mean any math textbook is factually accurate we hope but the bible is true in some deeper sense what i mean by that is that the bible is our our fundamental prior assumption for all other truth as christians everyone has assumptions that helps them formulate the rest of their beliefs, their sort of philosophy of life. And as Christians, and in particular as the, the type of Christians that we are, the most fundamental proposition that we have is that the Bible is the real Word of God, delivered to us accurately. And that belief undergirds everything else that we believe. Believing that God exists is correct and necessary, and I think even evident from creation, but believing that God exists without additional knowledge from the Bible is only worth so much, and is not actually sufficient for salvation because we don't know anything about God's character or about what he desires from us or about what he requires from us without Scripture. And so practically speaking, it means that the revelation that is in the Bible, God's revealed word to us, is necessary to think and live rightly. It means that the Bible sets the boundaries for what is true and what is necessary for us to know. The Bible teaches us how to think about God and about ourselves. It answers our questions, and it also instructs us on which questions we ought to ask. 2 Timothy, Paul writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. So because God's Word is true, and true in that deeper More essential, more fundamental sense, it is good for us in all situations. Whether or not we need to be built up or torn down or to learn something new or to unlearn something old, God's Word is the source of truth for us. So when Paul says to think on what is true, he probably doesn't only use that word to mean Scripture, but surely that should be most of it. So when we meditate, we think on these things that are true and practice them, what that means is that we think. The next virtue is honorable—a word that we don't use too much these days, probably to the detriment of our culture. Some translations, you might see this word uh, noble, which isn't any better. We really don't care that much about honor in our culture, and we certainly don't care about nobility, either in the sense of a character trait or in the sense of a certain lineage. But even though we don't use those words, we still have an innate sense of what they mean. In other places in the Bible, this word might be translated worthy of respect in reference to, for example, an authority figure, someone who leads well and who you are happy to follow. That's an idea that we're all familiar with. We all desire that same respect, and we also all desire to follow those who are worthy of that same respect. Uh, Believe it or not, the economist Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations, also wrote a work of moral philosophy in which he said, man desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. We all want the admiration of our peers and those whose opinions we value, but we also want to deserve it. We don't want to merely seem honorable. We want to be honorable. The outside should match the inside. So to be honorable, to think upon and practice those things that are honorable, we must flee hypocrisy and embrace repentance. The Bible says the Christians ought to be respectable, well thought of by outsiders, were to live quiet and godly lives, but we're also cautioned to avoid doing good in view of others, lest we receive or reward here on earth instead of in heaven. Our lives ought to be marked by righteousness as we strive to obey God, but we must also always be on guard for sinful motives. Am I doing this because I will look good? Am I doing this because I want to be seen doing it? Am I doing this because I want people to think I'm the kind of person who does this kind of thing? It's not honorable to receive praise for good works while your soul is insincere. Now more and more each day, those things which God declares to be good and honorable, our culture declares to be bad and dishonorable. So we must be all the more on guard for people-pleasing behaviors. There's no honor in faltering under principles in order to impress your fellow man. So these things that are truly honorable, which we must think upon and practice, means that we do what is right regardless of the cost, but also not for the sake of being noticed. Third, we must think upon those things that are just. If you've read very much of Paul's writings in your Bible, you're probably familiar with the term justification. That's a legal word that Paul uses to refer to making a defense for wrongdoing. My actions were justified, therefore I'm not guilty. But this usage is a different underlying word. Here we're referring to justice as in righteousness, as in doing what is right. And especially in the context of making a decision that affects others. A just king or a just judge isn't necessarily one who knows the rules of the law the best, but rather he's the one who makes the best decision that results in the most righteousness for all. It's about hearing arguments from both sides and making a fair and righteous verdict. You could even say it's about making decisions that make the world a better place. So thinking on those things that are just, practicing those things that are just, means that we are to think on those things that serve to bring the world into a better order. And that order, of course, is set by God's standard, by the truth in his word, but also by wisdom. We all have to make decisions that affect others every day. Some have positions of authority and power wherein they affect others more, depending on your station in life, but all of us have some measure of power over others so we must weigh them against Scripture and the character of God and determine, are my actions contributing to justice for those around me, or am I taking from them to fuel my own desires? So depending on your station in life, you may have financial power over others, or maybe in some cases even the power of life and death, but for most of us, we probably don't think of ourselves as having a great deal of power over others, and yet even the least of us can darken a room with a sour demeanor, can cut down with our words, can take from another's joy to try to satisfy our own sinful desire for bitterness or anger or revenge. So are we using what power we have to make the world a more just and godly place, or are we serving ourselves with our choices? Fourth, we are to meditate on what is pure. Purity is a word that in Christian circles usually just essentially means the opposite of sexual immorality. There's the sexually immoral, and the opposite of that is And purity certainly includes that, and for many, it is the foremost matter. But purity is not merely sexual. Purity also includes the content of all of our thoughts about everything. And purity means without blemish or spot. Do your thoughts desire godly, holy things, or are they consumed with earthly desires? Are your thoughts consistently marked by the fruit of the Spirit, which we read earlier. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I understand that that's a tall order what I'm saying, to have your thoughts be pure in all cases. Are your thoughts gentle when you're in bad traffic? Are your thoughts peaceful when all of your plans for the day are falling apart because everyone is just a little bit late and a little bit too sloppy and... Are your thoughts peaceful? Are your thoughts patient when you're instructing your child for the hundredth time about the same thing? Are your thoughts kind when your coworker drops a bunch of work on you out of their own laziness because they know that you'll take care of them? It's an incredibly high standard to ask for our thoughts to be pure. And so this ought to then draw our attention to something very important. These instructions, these virtues which Paul teaches us are not possible to obey. As I describe all of these virtues, you should be struck with the reality that we do not think on these things. We do not practice these things, any of them, perfectly, let alone all of them. I do not fill my mind and my deeds with these virtues, these godly, righteous virtues. And to put purity in the list really drives the point home, because the whole point of purity is that it's absolute. One blemish is all it takes to ruin the whole. And so even though we're only halfway through this list of virtues, now comes the perfect time to address this tension. As Paul tells us to think on these things, true, honorable, just, pure, and he says God will be with us, but we do not think on these things. As much as I fail in my deeds to always be truthful and honorable and just and pure, how much more often do I fail in my thoughts to do these things? I mean, who among us has not thought something so horrific that if acted out would ruin our lives or worse? So how, then, can the God of peace be with us? And I hope that you know the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of all things. Think about that word, embodiment. He is the, the body. He is these virtues in a body. He is truth in a body. He is purity in a body. He, while on earth, even as he was the Son of God, was likewise a man with a mind like ours, and a heart like ours, and a body like ours, and yet free from every imperfect thought. He meditated deeply on these things, and he practiced all these things. He is the way, the truth, and the life, he says. He's perfectly just. He's always righteous, and his decisions are always what is right. He is pure, the Bible says, a lamb without blemish or spot. Not a single straight thought, no one thoughtless word. Never once did Jesus lose control, slip for a moment, or entertain one evil thought. He is unimaginably virtuous. And there is no doubt that Paul has this in mind as he writes to us, because as with all of his letters, the letter to the Philippians is absolutely filled with teaching about Jesus. And so as he then brings the letter to a close the main point, the focus of all of our thoughts, is not merely this collection of aspirational virtues, but rather the very real example of the embodiment of these virtues. In a sense, Jesus is a shortcut to filling your mind with all these things. How can I fill my mind with things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy? Fortunately, one man is all of those things. So simply thinking on Jesus, and practicing the way he lived, is sufficient. Jesus is not some distant hero so far above us that he is unreachable. He is, of course, so far above us being perfect, and we are nothing of the sort, but he has instead come down to us to meet us in our weakness. If we were able to think and do all of these things, it says right here, God would be with us. But of course we cannot think and do all of these things, and yet God comes to us anyway. Because it is not our own efforts at virtue, but rather another way by which we can be with God. Earlier in the letter Paul writes, I do not have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. These things that ought to fill our minds and then therefore fill our deeds are not from us. They are not from our obedience in the law, but rather, they are from the work of Jesus. Paul continues writing, That I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him, in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Anytime Paul teaches about how to act right, which he does often, there is much to learn about how to act right, it Is always in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is always in the context that those right actions are not the source of our salvation, they are not the source of our peace, they are not ultimately how we get to be with God, but rather it is the work of Jesus in us that results in these things. And that's why those virtues serve to guard our hearts. It is a a poor guardian of my heart if I am trusting on my own ability to do right, to prove my worth and my faithfulness. When I have doubts, it's not really helpful for me to look at my own life and say, good thing my doubts must be untrue because I'm actually really great, so I don't need to doubt about my faith and my salvation in God because I know I'm not great. My thoughts are not true and just and pure and lovely and excellent, but Jesus, And if I am in him, then I have joined him in his death, and I have joined him in his life. And that is what guards our hearts. That is what results in steadfastness when anxieties and fears and doubts and sin come into our lives. So friends, I want to finish working through our passage through this remaining list of virtues. I'm going to move a lot faster for the last four because they're they're much more similar. And then I want to share some very practical techniques to implement these thoughts and practices in our lives, centered around mostly the work of Jesus, but also the truth of God's Word, and the wisdom that comes from working the way that God works. So we are also to think upon and practice things that are lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. Lovely is a word that means attractive and pleasing. Not just looking good for the sake of it, but rather inclined to bring people together. We draw people in we cause peace instead of division. Instead of separating and cutting apart, we, we tear down the divisions. We strive for unity. We come closer. And all of that, of course, in Christ. The greatest unity that we have, regardless of what other divisions. Whatever I look at you and whatever I think about the way that you live your life and the way that you raise your kids and your political views and your thoughts about whatever, if all of that makes you seem less lovely to me, none of that matters. Because if we are in Christ, That is the most lovely thing to one another. We should all have that great love for one another, because we are together in Christ. We must think on things that are commendable, that is worthy of a good reputation. It's similar to honorable, but more concrete. We're instructed in Scripture to do everything as unto the Lord. So this virtue speaks against laziness or fraud. We are not meant to seek the easy way out, we are not meant to cut corners, especially when dealing with others, but rather we are to do everything as for the Lord that we might have a good reputation because we represent Him. We should think on and practice things that are excellent. This word calls to mind being visible. Someone who is thought of as being excellent is known for righteousness, known for goodness, not showing it off, but also not hiding it. We should not attempt to be righteous in a way that doesn't make any waves or doesn't offend anyone. Or doesn't make anyone rethink their suppositions, but rather righteousness is its own reward, excellence is its own reward. And finally, we are to think on anything that is worthy of praise. It is maybe a little unnatural to think that we ought to do what is right, we ought to think what is right in order to impress God. And that's true. We can't we can't impress God. There's no sense in which we can earn righteousness before God. But Paul is very upfront that he lives his life the way that he does because he aspires for God to tell him, well done, good and faithful servant. He desires that reward in heaven. He wants to be praised. Does not any child want to do good to be praised by their father? Well done. You have done what is right. You have obeyed me. I'm proud And so we ought to live our lives and think our thoughts in ways that are praiseworthy before God. And so then Paul says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So as I promised, I'll conclude with some practical suggestions on ways in which we can form our thoughts and turn those thoughts into practice. First, I want to return to the fact that Bible treats our mind and our heart and our body in a much more integrated manner than modern thought. There's kind of a way that we tend to think about ourselves, which is like a brain on a stick, and the stick is just sort of not really important. It's mostly just the way that our brain interacts with the world, right? I'm mostly just what's going on in here, and all this physical stuff, just kind of machinery and bits and pieces, and it's not really important. But the Bible, God, does not think of us that way. Our mind, our heart, our body, our soul, are all one. That doesn't mean that they're not different. It doesn't mean that there's there's no difference between our body and our mind. I mean, after all, our bodies are going to be made completely new, but our souls persist on into eternity. So there, there is some difference. But <clears throat> what we should not do is we should not think that we need to change our minds without that resulting in changing our bodies, and vice versa. Our behaviors, what our bodies do, what our tongues and our hands do, is not... Divorced from what is in our spirit and what is in our mind. And so, because this is true, we know what cognitive behavioral therapy also agrees that change starts with our thoughts and emotions. As Christians, what we really know is that true change starts with God changing our hearts so that we are repentant. Because modifying one's behavior is all well and good, but what we truly desire is for our will for our desire, for our urges, for our preferences to be made righteous. You can discipline yourself to do what's right, but it's another thing entirely to have God change your heart so that you want to do what's right. It does happen. Slowly, often over the course of many years, in a process that in the Bible we call sanctification, God making you more holy. But as the years go by, as you remain faithful, you will be able to look back see God changing your heart and mind to desire what is right. But let's talk about what we can do today. I think about sports. I played baseball for a long time as a kid. A lot of coaches, a lot of practice, a lot of drills. When something's going wrong in a game, you're missing on every swing, it's really tempting to try to, like, make an adjustment. It's like, oh, I'm missing, maybe I'll, like, change my feet, or, like, let me step back and think, am I doing the right thing with my hands? And... Anyone who has played a lot of sports knows that that's almost never successful and is usually counterproductive. You often make things worse when you try to rethink or change things up in the middle of a, a tense moment. Rather, the way that you become excellent at a sport is by disciplining yourself in advance through practice, through drill, through repetition. See, when you are missing a lot, maybe it's because maybe it's because when you swing, there's this temptation to really rip it, and your head and it comes up, and your momentum. And, You don't look at the ball and so if you can't see the ball, how can you hit it? It's very hard to hit a baseball already, let alone with your eyes closed. And so the coach might say to you, hey, keep your eye on the ball. Well, that's, yeah, that's great advice, coach, right? Everyone, you can't hit a baseball if you can't see it. But the reason why that coaching is effective is because I've done drills hundreds of times, where I take that swing, and I keep my head down, and I keep my eye on the ball, and even after I hit the ball, I don't look at it, because it doesn't matter where it goes. All I'm doing is I'm drilling, I'm training myself over and over again. Eye on the ball, eye on the ball, eye on the ball, eye on the ball, hundreds, thousands of swings, so that during the game, when I'm missing and missing, and the coach says, hey, keep your eye on the ball, it clicks, of course. I know what to do here. I'm not rethinking, I'm not learning something new, I'm not changing things up, I'm doing what I've done, thousand times before I'm keeping my eye on the So what does it look like for a Christian to drill, for a Christian to practice? I'm going to offer three categories. One, the things that we consume. Two, the things that we memorize. And three, the things that we repeat. So first, consumption. The Bible says, think on these things. Practice these things. Brothers and sisters, how can you think on things that are true, noble, lovely, just, honorable, excellent, if you are consuming the exact opposite day in and day out? I'm not saying never watch TV. I get it. Everything on TV is terrible. Our culture is just awash with vulgarity and sin and sexual immorality. We're not Luddites. But friends, please consider your weaknesses. Consider your patterns of thought. Are you prone to anxiousness? to a lack of trust that God will care for you. Why are you reading so much social media about all the bad things that might happen to everyone? Just do less of it. Consume less of it. Are you inclined to lustful thought? Don't watch those TV shows and follow those accounts that push the boundaries. Flee from it. You are not missing anything by just consuming less of those things that form your thoughts against the things of God. You cannot think on what is right if you are constantly eating what is wrong. Secondly, memorization. Filling your mind with scripture is guaranteed to give you something good to fall back on. Keep your eye on the ball. It's obvious. It's simple advice. It's been borne out by many, many, many years. Thousands of baseball players. They all do it. They all know it. It's the right thing to do. How do we know what the right thing is to fill our mind with? It's in the Bible. Let's remember too that most Christians in all of history either couldn't read or couldn't afford or source a copy of the Bible. So the things they could keep in their mind were all they had and it was nonetheless sufficient for them to live lives that were honoring to God. Memorizing this passage is a great start. What things do I need to think on? Well, There's a list right here. Whatever is true. Whatever is honorable. Whatever is just. Whatever is pure. Whatever is lovely. Whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Write it down. Tape it up somewhere. Repeat it to yourself out loud while you're in the car. Get someone you trust to test you on it. Use flashcards. Take this seriously. You know, when I played baseball, we had one game, two hours on a Saturday. But we also had practice for three hours, sometimes twice a week. We're taking this seriously. It takes time and effort. It takes physical actions. I, I, you know, write it down. Really do. Write down a scripture, tape it on your steering wheel, say it out loud to yourself when you're driving. These are the kinds of practices, these are the kinds of things that fill our minds with what is right. And when our minds are filled with what is right, we act in ways that are right. Beyond the Bible, there are also innumerable excellent resources. Um, one historical one would be the idea of catechism. A catechism is sort of a, it's like a statement of faith. It's kind of a way to sum up doctrines in scripture, because sometimes in the Bible, a particular truth is maybe not in like a like punchy, catchy phrasing, and that's fine. It's okay to use our own words. And so Christians throughout the years have developed catechisms, which are question and answers that are meant to be memorized and repeated, often in training children, but they're so valuable for adults If you are anxious, worried about your life, maybe the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism could be of value to you. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Doesn't that just sum it up? If you're tempted to self-centeredness, maybe the first question of the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man? End meaning purpose. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. It doesn't need to be something necessarily straight. Uh, It doesn't need to be an exact quote of Scripture, but it needs to be something straight out of Scripture. And these historical catechisms are a great source of simple, memorable questions and answers, which we can use to fill our mind. And the last piece of advice is repetition. One technique in cognitive behavioral therapy is ahead of time to talk through and consider what might be these negative thought patterns that you have that result in these negative behaviors. You write it down, and then you also write down a script to think, to tell yourself in that moment. And you memorize that script through repetition. Because in the moment, when you are anxious, when you are tempted, when you are suffering, it's really hard to go back and peacefully and calmly think carefully and logically about something that you know to be true because you decided it in advance. But what's a lot more easy is when you've said something a hundred times, and so it pops into your mind. You can reset that moment by reorienting yourself on something that is true. That scripture you've memorized, that catechism question, that song that you know that speaks truth. Repetition is the most effective way to bring these right thoughts to our minds in moments of distress. Philippians 4.6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Whereas if you are anxious, but you have this verse in Philippians memorized, when that anxiety strikes, when the heart rate goes up, when you start to sweat, suddenly this verse, which you've repeated to yourself hundreds, maybe thousands of times while you've been driving and brushing your teeth and taking a shower, pops into your mind. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And as you repeat it, it instructs you, approach God with thankfulness. It's a lot more difficult to remain anxious when you are busy thanking God for all of the good that he's done to you. Most of all, the good that he's done to you through the gospel of Jesus. What is my only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own. Okay, I'm not my own. Whatever happens to me, it doesn't belong to me. I belong to God. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. My body wants this. But is that my body's chief end? Is that the purpose of what I'm here for? No. I'm here to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It doesn't even need to be something pre-written. My son, Arthur, is one. I don't know if this is just a thing with all one-year-olds or if it's him in particular, but he really seems to not be patient. When he gets something in his mind, it's just more, 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 more. And you I can't, I can't shake him out of it. I say, Arthur, what do you want? Do you want this? Please stop. I've already answered. Nothing seems to break him out of this pattern. He's he's impatient. And yet one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. So I am trying to teach him, again, he's one, it's a long journey. I am trying to teach him that when he's being impatient, I can look him in the eye, put his hand on his shoulder, and say, Arthur, what is patience? And the answer is the ability to wait. And eventually, through much practice and endurance on my part, I hope that one day in the future, when he is impatient, and he is beside himself, and he cannot wait, I can calm his soul and say, Art, what is patience? And he can say, the ability to wait. And then together we can learn to wait. It can be anything. Whatever works, as long as it is the truth of Scripture, represented by these virtues that Paul listed. Things that are true, things that are pure, things that are just, things that are commendable. Repeat them to yourself. Memorize them for yourself so that in the moments of suffering and doubt and sinful temptations, they come to you. Brothers and sisters, we are simple creatures. We are imperfect, we're foolish, we're distractible. We repeat the same mistakes over and over again. But the other side of that coin is that we can also be helped by simple truth. Paul knows this, which is why he writes such simple advice. Think about what is good, and it will help you do what is good. It's so tempting to overthink all of our wrong patterns of thought. Why do I do this? What's my motive? What happened in my past to make me this way? What would be a good plan to stop? What should I be doing instead? All of those things are helpful avenues of exploration, but not when it's happening. Take your time, write them down, pray over those questions, but in the moment when temptation is upon you, are you really going to have the time and peace of mind to go through all of that? Of course not. Our thoughts and emotions are so easily tossed about, which is why God gives us wise advice. Think. Meditate on what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. So that when the temptations come, you have thought about them so deeply that your mind is filled with God's goodness and righteousness, they easily come to your mind, and from the outflow of your heart, your words and your actions. The most simple possible way to put it is to think deeply. About Jesus, the embodiment of all this good, and you will act like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for understanding us. Thank you for understanding what we need, how our minds and our hearts work, or so often don't work. But out of your understanding, thank you for giving us instruction. Like a good Father, you know our hearts, you give us what we need to do what is honoring to you and therefore what is best for us. God, please fill our minds with an unending stream of things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy, first and foremost, the example and the work and the gospel of Jesus. Let our minds be so overflowing with thoughts of such things that our deeds reflect them effortlessly. Let us always seek after you, disciplining ourselves to remain steadfast, that we might receive a reward in heaven as you've promised. In Jesus' name, amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, No Derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.